Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Dr. Jagannath Panda, who is a research fellow and coordinator of the East Asia Center at the Manohar Parikar Institute for Defense Studies and Analyses in New Delhi. He's the author of many books, publications, and the recipient of a number of prestigious fellowships. We'll be discussing the geopolitics of India, China, the US, and Indo-Pacific. Dr. Panda, thank you for taking the time to join the podcast and welcome. Thank you, Rove. Uh, it's a pleasure talking to you and uh, thank you very much for your uh, invitation. All right. Now, I, I try to interview an expert on India and the Indo-Pacific every once in a while. And I think you're one of my new favorites. I was going through your Twitter feed, which is an amazing uh, resource and your your late um, your publications as of late, and, and they're really good. And so perhaps maybe just to set some context, could you give us perhaps a brief layout of what India's key challenges and ambitions are in the global geopolitical scheme of things at the moment? I think there are a number of challenges as far as India is concerned in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, we have to see the, from every country's domestic point of view. I think the biggest challenge at this moment in India is how to sustain its economic growth and how to put its domestic constituency in order trying to have a much more uh, stable and effective governance process. And I think that is key to any nation's governance uh, and any nation's rights. And India is no exception to that effect. But while saying that, I think if we try to link it with the geopolitics of the regions and particularly with the uh, power politics in the Indo-Pacific, we do have a number of um, security challenges and these are significant in nature. Uh, China comes first. Uh, I think, uh, you know, a couple of decades back, one would say that probably it is Pakistan, which used to be the number one challenges for India. But today, I think the kind of power China has emerged and the kind of uh, influence uh, they do have in the regions, their revisionist um, activisms, their uh, geopolitical strategy, and the way the People's Liberation Army, along with the Chinese Communist Party, carry out their diplomacy towards the neighbors, including a competing powers like India, uh, that's actually comes as a much bigger concern and threat uh, to India and many other countries. So therefore, I would say that um, uh, more than the domestic constituency, if we try to link it from uh, and try to think it from a geopolitical point of view, China has emerged the number one strategic concern and threat for India. And we know for a fact that, uh, you know, uh, in the neighborhood, uh, China has emerged as a stronger military power, stronger economic power, and that is uh, to some extent uh, posing challenges to India. But more than that, I think we do have also other security challenges like Pakistan, which is a traditional rival country. Even though uh, India's approach towards Pakistan has been quite moderate, quite uh, passive, and quite friendly as a neighbor and as a historically um, the single constituency that we used to have. But today, I think, uh, given the kind of foreign policy, the political context that Pakistan's foreign policy and diplomacy is employing, along with China, that is certainly not in the interest of India. Uh, so uh, domestic constituency challenges like effective governance, China problem, Pakistan problems are the more serious problems and challenges for India's national security. And I think one more security challenges for India when we try to think it from a geopolitical point of view is the issue of terrorism. Uh, I think the issue of terrorism, even though in, in the last couple of years we have said, we have seen that the terrorism has uh, come down 
to affect india's national security and that is primarily because of the uh, you know effective security measures and counter terrorism strategy of the current government but again india has been a victim of uh, terrorism for last um, three decades or so uh, so and pakistan has a big uh, hand in promoting cross border terrorism uh, in in india and different parts of india so that's another um, you know security challenges that india has to uh, face in times to come and india is currently facing and before moving uh, on ahead to, to china and i have a question as well on pakistan just wanted to get your thoughts on prime minister uh, modi i had some dear indian co-workers when, uh, in my time in, in Kazakhstan who were huge Modi fans. And uh, you know, I just wanted to get your assessment of Modi and his accomplishments and, and failures thus far and, and his geopolitical vision for, for India. How do, you see, how, how do you see his tenure? I think he's an effective political leader. And uh, I think um, the kind of uh, leadership we used to have in the 21st century India, he has changed the narrative. He has provided an effective leadership. He has provided a strong leadership. And more importantly, he's having a much more nationalist oriented leadership that India was looking for. So to that effect, I think um, a lot of credit should go to Prime Minister Modi in terms of rejuvenating India's um, national priorities, national security priorities, and uh, trying to put India's interest um, in, the, in the world canvas. Uh, while saying that, I think uh, another hallmark of Prime Minister Modi is that how effectively he has diffused or overcome the oppositions to continue and stay in power. That's about his uh, effective and uh, you know skillful uh, political acumen. Uh, in fact, um, if we see, he has actually defied many oppositions and many um, you know allegations that were against him, and he has actually. Uh, succeeded in terms of winning the uh, voices and support of the common people in, the, in, in, in India. And that's actually a tremendous achievement. In post-independence era, I think after uh, the first Prime Minister of India, uh, Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru, and uh, probably we don't have any leader who have been so popular. Uh, so to that effect, I think his popularity is tremendous. He has a tremendous political acumen and uh, he puts India as the first in its uh, uh, domestic and uh, international dialogue mechanisms. So putting India's national interest as, as first priority, putting India as the first and putting Indian people's interest first brings him as a frontline leader in Indian politics. And I think uh, he's an effective leader and he's here to come. He's here to stay for some time in power. And so before, again, before we get to China, you mentioned uh, terrorism as one of the, the, the third factor in Pakistan, as well as the second security factor for uh, India. And as you mentioned, we know that, you know, terrorism has emanated, come from uh, Pakistan. They've had they've had issues and problems with that. Uh, I recently found a piece on The Diplomat uh, discussing, quote, that said Pakistan's national security advisor has accused India of orchestrating last month's deadly car bombing in Lahore, saying that an investigation has shown it was organized by an Indian intelligence uh, operative, end quote. And if I recall, the last time that there was you know heavy activity between India and Pakistan on the line of control was 2019. Uh, it, it seems that Pakistan is favoring China while, while India is favoring more uh, the U.S. And so do you, do you see 
an issue uh, on the border or line of control uh, sparking up again? Um, you know, where do you see going forward India and Pakistan relations? I think when it comes to Pakistan and the kind of reportage you are quoting from diplomats and other sources, I think these are baseless counter allegations. Uh, and for a long time, we know that uh, Pakistan's foreign policy and national narrative is based on uh, anti-India narrative. And that's how the political leaders within Pakistan, they have survived, they have thrilled, and they have captured power by carrying out anti-India sentiment among the Pakistani people. So I think uh, what we are seeing and what you are quoting is nothing uh, you know, really surprising because um, uh, Pakistan has pursued anti-India foreign policy to survive and position itself, not only within the domestic constituency, but also regionally and in global politics. While saying that, I think um, uh, we need to understand that, uh, you know, uh, both Pakistan and China have a common point agenda to destabilize India, to restrict India's rights, because they do see India's rights is not into their interest, even though they, they have all the opportunities to take advantage of India's rise in, in regional and global politics and associate with India as India is known for its peace-loving image, peace-loving posture. But unfortunately, when it comes to Pakistan and China, they don't have a such a passive foreign policy. They have a much more active foreign policy, which is based on anti-India foreign policy. And uh, when it comes to uh, Pakistan's foreign policy, having an anti-India narrative is, is a given. When it comes to Chinese foreign policy, having an anti-India, anti-Japan, anti-US narrative in its foreign policy is a given. So I think we should not be really surprised. And the way the Pakistan-China partnership is evolving, that's not really surprising because most of these partnerships are meant to sideline India, pressurize India, and try to cut through India's uh, security interest in the regions and economic interest in the regions. And this is what their partnership is doing for a uh, for, for number of years. While saying that, I think uh, we also need to see that the way uh, they have carried out connectivity projects, projects including the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. If you talk about the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, that is one of the flagship uh, corridor projects of the Belt and Road Initiative of the Chinese government. So the Chinese government need Pakistan to use it against India and for its own survival to uh, win a capital base, market based in Pakistan and trying to have an alternative ways of entry to Indian Ocean. So I think they, the Chinese government, China as a country need Pakistan more than Pakistan needs China. And now when it comes to Pakistan, uh, even though we can say that Pakistan also equally needs China, but Pakistan's priorities as far as China is very different. Pakistan's priorities from China is that they should get absolutely blind support from China on many issues relating to India and US because China is a permanent um, uh, permanent five member of the United Nations Security Council. And more importantly, now they need Chinese support against India uh, on, on territorial matters, on, on Jammu and Kashmir issue, on Ladakh issue, on, on Gilgit Baltistan issue, and uh, on issues of uh, Pakistan occupied Kashmir. So on many issues, Pakistanis need Chinese support, including the finance and the budget part. In fact, uh, today, I think uh, we won't be surprised to see that uh, when you go and uh, see the record of Pakistan's uh, you know, um, 
um, um, aid collection and the foreign um, assistance that financial assistance that is coming from any other countries, China ranks probably much higher than any other country. So I think that is uh, something that is really worrisome in the regions. And India has all the regions to be, um, you know, very sure and very concerned about this development. But I think uh, India's competency holds that India is emerging as a stable and competent Indo-Pacific strengthened partnership with the US, with Japan, with Australia. And that is actually unnerving uh, both, uh, you know, uh, China and Pakistan and the China-Pakistan partnership uh, person. And to get to China then, um, depending on who you ask, China is being made out to have already supplanted you know, the US empire as a, as a superpower and actively seeking hegemonic expansion. Others consider China to merely be finally joining the table kind of as a multipolar equal, yet some consider China as an overextended paper tiger, citing problems with its demographics, need for natural resources and need to expand. I think you seem to take the position that China is an authoritarian expansionist power. Who is China for you and what is driving Beijing? Well, uh, China of 20 or 30 years back is not the same China that we are dealing today. In fact, today, I would say that China is very much a, uh, you know, revolutionary revisionist power. It not only a revisionist power, but it's a revolutionary revisionist power. It is carrying out a long lot of uh, uh, effective changes um, quite, quite rapidly. In fact, uh, it is trying to change the status quo on the land border issues to maritime issues to, you know, uh, carrying out uh, infrastructure diplomacy to connectivity diplomacy. So they are changing the order, they are changing the norms, and they are changing the physical connotation of a region. And I think, therefore, I would call it a much more authoritarian, unitary, authoritarian, uh, revolutionary, revisionist power. But while saying that, I think uh, we need to also go into the details of uh, why and how the Chinese are emerging as a revolutionary, revisionist power. I think the key behind this is the Chinese Communist Party of China. The Chinese Communist Party of China has captured the power for the last 100 years. And in fact, uh, just a week back, they celebrated the 100 years of the centenary. And if we see that centenary, um, all the Xi Jinping is uh, talking about is to unify China further and make China stronger and not to compromise on China's national security and sovereignty matters. Now, that cannot be the behavior of a um, you know, of, a, of an effective power, uh, which is a, um, you know, um, permanent type member of the United Nations Security Council. Um, it, it doesn't really bode well when we talk about the Chinese power. I think uh, two decades back, there was a, rea a realization among the Chinese leadership that probably China needs to be much more, um, you know, sober, mild, and China needs to actually engage much more positively and effectively with the regional countries, take, build their con confident, uh, confidence and you know, win their confidence. But that's not the thing we are seeing today. Under Xi Jinping's leadership, uh, I think uh, the Chinese power is becoming much more an assertive and aggressive power, uh, trying to you know, put uh, at the front China's national security interest, which is, uh, you know, by hook or crook, try to acquire as much as land possible, as much as, uh, you know, maritime um, uh, domain is concerned, try to acquire as much as maritime 
you know, uh, regions are concerned or disputes are concerned, try to have more maritime zones into their port. And I think that is a worrisome factor. And uh, today also what is really helping them is their position of strength from where they are operating. They have an effective operational tool. And uh, when we talk about their position of strength, I think their position of strength has massively increased, primarily because of the Chinese economy. Chinese economy today has actually been uh, four to five times higher than Indian economy. If we talk about at the beginning of this century, uh, 21st century, uh, somewhere around 2002 and 2003, there was not much gap between the Chinese economy and Indian economy. But today, those gap has exceptionally you know, widened and uh, those gap has uh, been so enormous the Chinese economy has become actually uh, more than four times uh, than Indian economy. And that's a serious, serious concern, not only for India, but, um, um, but you know, for, for a number of other regions, uh, other countries in the region. The position of strength they are operating from and their operational strategy of world Korea diplomacy to, you know, charm offensive diplomacy that they do have in terms of actualizing the Belt and Road initiatives through giving don donations and aid to the smaller countries and trying to put them on a debt trap and trying to sign a partnership is a worrisome factor for the regions. And I think uh, India has taken a strong note of it. India has never supported China's Belt and Road initiatives and India will not continue to support Belt and Road initiatives. But while saying that, I think uh, India is setting an example which is not going well with the Chinese leadership. And as a result of what we see a China-India contestation is emerging day by day. And, you know, j just to add on that, you wrote recently that uh, Beijing and New Delhi's hostility has deep roots situated in long-standing mutual suspicion, contested political visions, conflicting claims along the border and clashing strategic interests, uh, end quote. So apart from what you just mentioned, uh, the economy, if I'm not mistaken, I think India just banned a number of Chinese um, digital uh, apps or applications. And th there's this, uh, there are these continuing problems on the China-India border, kind of this skirmish, you know, is that a sign of Chinese expansion, just like we're seeing elsewhere, perhaps on, on China's border uh, with, with Nepal and other parts of the world? Yes, I think um, if we try to understand the Chinese game plan, their game plan is very, very um, visible clearly as far as India is concerned. And uh, their game plan is very effective. Uh, as I mentioned today, their economy is uh, almost, uh, you know, four times of Indian economy. And uh, uh, they are trying to identify the neighbors who could take an anti-India role. Uh, and if we try to see the trend, they're continuously trying to impress and align with India's neighbors. Pakistan was always with their fold, but not necessarily the other South Asian countries. Today, if we see, I think they are effectively building a partnership with uh, Nepal, with Bangladesh, with Sri Lanka, and that, that those are worrisome factors. Um, and more than that, the Chinese engagement with some of the South Asian countries are of a different uh, nature. Uh, with, with Nepal, they, they try to employ a different strategy, trying to link it with the territorial and the boundary issues. Um, with with, uh, with uh, Bhutan, they are trying to have a much more different strategy, trying to create a gap between India and Bhutan by saying that Bhutan is a independent country and Bhutan should not be overly reliant with uh, uh, with uh, on on India. 
Uh, so they, there is a different strategy they are employing. Similarly with the Bangladesh, there is a lot of investment, the Chinese investment coming to Bangladesh. And they are trying to delink India from Bangladesh, uh, you know, trying to say that historically, uh, even though India-Bangladesh had a good relations, um, history should not be the base about the future. So I think the Chinese game plan is very different from each country to each country. Uh, but there is one common binding element in the Chinese uh, strategy is that most of this strategy is to create a feature between India and uh, Indian neighbors. And that's why we see that China is emerging as a much more um, Himalayan hegemonic power for India, which is creating a kind of a gap between India and India's Himalayan neighbors, be it uh, the, the Nepal, be it uh, Bhutan, be it Bangladesh. Uh, I think um, the Chinese are succeeding to create this uh, division between India and the uh, South, other South Asian countries. Uh, I think that in order to counter that, India has uh, uh, you know, effectively pursued a forced neighborhood strategy under Prime Minister Modi. Uh, but again, you know, the kind of uh, uh, historical complex issues are there. I think it's not really easy to just uh, you know, introduce a first neighborhood policy and trying to strengthen the partnership with Nepal, Bhutan, Sri Lanka, and Bangladesh. I think India needs to continuously uh, convince these smaller countries that India's rights is in their interest, and India is not a hegemonic actor like China. So I think to that effect, uh, Indian policy and Indian diplomacy has to be much more uh, you know effective. Um, and I think there. The Chinese are succeeding and uh, probably India needs to do more. So we've recently heard a lot of things coming out of Japan, um, Japan joining the U.S. in defense of uh, Taiwan, calling for a Japanese version, perhaps of the U.S.-Taiwan Relations Act. And I believe the U.S. Army just tested the high mobility artillery rocket system in Japan uh, for the first time, what do you make of, you know, where do you see Japan in all of this? And what do you make of Japan's recent actions and, and their greater significance for the Indo-Pacific? And, and you, do you ever see China going for Taiwan at some point? Yeah, I think uh, uh, the geopolitical environment is becoming um, much more interesting uh, in recent time, particularly after the pandemic. And if we talk about Japan national security interest, Japan national security interest under the former Prime Minister Abe Shinzo was continuously being, uh, you know, enhanced and strengthened. And Japan was having an effective Indo-Pacific outlook. Uh, but uh, there has been a gap after uh, Prime Minister Abe Shinzo has stepped down. And the new leadership has not really pursued the same kind of strategy that Abe used to implement. But while saying that, we know ultimately that Japan's uh, security interest um, in the regions is very much defined. It is linked with the Taiwan issue. It is linked with the Senkaku Island issue. It is linked with its partnership with the US. It is linked with its partnership with uh, India and Australia. So Japan's foreign policy is much more a defined foreign policy when we try to understand from Japan's point of view. And to that effect, uh, Taiwan issue is a critical issue for Japan because uh, Japan cannot afford to uh, compromise on the Taiwan uh, securities because, uh, uh, you know, occupation of Taiwan by uh, China means the Japan's, uh, you know, uh, physical security is exposed. 
Um, and we know for a fact that uh, apart from the Senkaku Island dispute, the Japanese are concerned that the Chinese Navy or the Chinese military or the PLA Navy should not come closer to the Japanese uh, coastal regions of the Pacific um, Angle. So they, the Japanese are much more concerned about uh, Taiwan security and Taiwan's, uh, you know, um, island chains that, uh, that are there on the South China Sea between the South China Sea and the East uh, Asia, in the East China Sea Bank. And I think uh, that's why we do see that Japan is showing a lot of interest towards the Taiwan issue, and they have every reason to align their interest with US. Unfortunately, between Japan and India, Taiwan as an issue has not really been discussed at length. And probably this has not been discussed in length because uh, for obviously, the strategic dilemma that exists or the non-confidence that exists between Japan and India. And I think uh, there, uh, both Japan and India can actually do wonders if they start talking about how they can actually cooperate with Taiwan or a India-Japan-Taiwan triangularity probably can uh, emerge at the non-official, at a, at a virtual level um, to enhance understanding and you know strengthen the kind of a strategic understanding among the three um, entities. Uh, more than that, I think uh, also we need to understand from the Japan's, uh, you know, uh, own political agenda. Japan's foreign policy and uh, political thinking is continuously evolving over the last uh, one decade or so. And Japan wants to strengthen its security and defense posturing in the, in the world politics, including in Asia and in the Pacific. And I think that is something uh, what Japan would like to achieve no matter which political party is coming uh, to power in Tokyo. Uh, and very soon probably we'll see a, um, you know, election happening in Tokyo. Uh, but uh, I think there is a virtual consensus has emerged in Japan over the last few years, even though there are different political biases support different kind of strategies that uh, uh, Japan needs to strengthen its uh, military and security, security postures. And to that effect, uh, Taiwan issue is a critical issue. Uh, Japan's defense and security partnership with the US is a critical issue. But at the same time, Japan's security and uh, defense partnership with a range of countries outside the US partnership is very useful. So therefore, I think uh, uh, India comes into play as an effective partner for Japan. And we saw that during the pandemic, both Japan and India signed the AXA agreement. And AXA agreement is a uh, game changer agreement in the sense that it is one of those key critical uh, security and defense agreement that actually builds confidence and it gives equal access to the, uh, you know, uh, to the both the securities to have more uh, confidential oriented of partnerships to build confidence, to share information and to have a much more cooperative platform for, for, for cooperation between the two militaries and uh, security entities. And I think to that effect, Japan would expect that its own security and, uh, you know, defense posturing in the regions should be announced. So to that effect, I think uh, they would be looking at uh, Taiwan in a new context, in a new in, in, uh, in, 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 in a new way. A, a few months back, I read a really forward-looking, uh, interesting op-ed 
by I think uh, an Indian expert um, calling, I guess, at, at some future point for the inclusion of India into NATO. And so I, I want to get your thoughts on the Quad. Some people call uh, um, consider the Quad an Asian NATO, others uh, not. India is a part of the Quad, so is Australia. And so uh, you know, what, are, what are your thoughts on the, on the Quad? Does it have any teeth uh, as well as, you know, where, does, where do Australia and New Zealand fit um, into the Indo-Pacific geopolitics? I think uh, we should not be really over uh, anxious about the Quad. I think Quad is still yet to emerge as an effective platform. Even though today we do see that there have been official mechanisms that are supporting uh, to you know uh, strengthen the Quad format. A ministerial meeting has happened. Now the leadership meeting has happened. But still, uh, the Quad is a long-term subject, and I think it is. It takes time to build confidence among the four countries, US, Japan, India, and Australia. And uh, it will take time to build that kind of confidence on, on key sensitive issues, be it defense-centric issues, be it security-centric issues, or geopolitical matters uh, concerning China. And I think Quad will take time to emerge as an effective platform, even though we have all the reasons today to say that it is becoming rapidly institutionalized. Uh, and I think uh, uh, to become really institutionalized, Quad has to meet again, prepare an agenda, prepare a, you know, a key uh, target groups to discuss about various issues uh, and whether we can have a united a common vision um, and common understanding, if not an agreement-based understanding um, among all the four countries of uh, you know, US, Japan, Australia, and India. So that is the key challenge uh, with regard to Quad. But um, uh, there is no doubt that the Quad is having a bright future. But at this moment, we should not unnecessarily draw uh, optimism by saying that Quad would eventually turn into an Asian NATO. I think Asian NATO is a critical issue. Uh, and uh, we know that when we're talking about NATO, NATO is a critical subject that actually has a defined chapter. It has a defined body. It has a head office. It has a headquarter. It uh, there are uh, members who have signed uh, uh, some agreements and some charter. Uh, they do follow some specific agenda, um, and um, the countries are actually partners of a NATO charter. So, if we're talking about an Asia NATO, we need to understand that uh, you know it is not the Quad which can build the Asia NATO. It is the association of many other countries. They have to align with Quad countries, US, Japan, Australia, and India, in order to promote an Asian NATO uh, you know, context or platform. So to that effect, I don't see that Asian NATO is a feasible idea at this moment, at least not in the next one decade. Uh, to have an Asian NATO platform, we need to have a security charter, we need to sign an agreement, we need to have a common vision and platform among all the constituency members to have an agreed formula on certain subjects, and more importantly, we need to contribute budget and uh, you know um, budget, and uh, we need to also contribute uh, funding um, and uh, uh, human resources to create a NATO kind of institutions. So I would say that uh, um, the Quad formulation should not be uh, confused with the Asian NATO. But when it comes to the Quad formulation, I would optimistically say by saying that. I think between Quad and Asia NATO, there is another effective platform 
which uh, all the quad countries would like to use to their advantage. That is the quad plus format or the quad plus platform. The quad plus platform is to invite countries like, uh, you know, like-minded countries who can actually agree to the quad agenda or quads virtual understanding to build a context, um, you know, to that would be much more complementary or commensurating with the in idea of the Indo-Pacific and strengthening the notion of Indo-Pacific. There are a range of countries we saw, uh, you know, showed the same kind of interest, for example, Vietnam, for example, Israel, uh, so, uh, for example, South Korea, uh, they have enormous interest in the Indo-Pacific, for example, France, they can be actually come into the Quad Plus format and join as a, um, you know, as a associated uh, dialogue partner with the Quad formulations. They doesn't have to be inducted into the Quad because if we involve into them into the Quad, Quad won't be Quad anymore. Um, and we should not be unnecessarily discussing expansion of the Quad process. I don't think a Quad has a membership that we can talk about the expansion of the Quad process. What we can actually talk about is the, uh, you know, a Quad plus format, a very dialect mechanisms between Quad and other like-minded countries like Vietnam, like South Africa, uh, South uh, Korea can be actually enhanced. And I think to that effect, Quad plus format can be a much more wiser and acceptable format uh, more than the Asian network at this moment. Something uh, interesting that you've mentioned in some of your publications is uh, China's influence operations, including their meddling in the dem democratic process of Australia, and some say even in the United States. Uh, could you just you know tell us a little bit more uh, about these? Well, I, I remember actually it was over a decade ago when I was studying diplomacy in uh, Geneva. One of my professors introduced me to. Uh, I think a lot of people know the publication Unrestricted Warfare that came out, I think, in the 1990s from, I think, two Chinese generals. So you know, could you tell us a little bit more about these influence uh, operations as you see them? I think uh, one of the most uh, effective and uh, hallmark of the Chinese diplomacy is uh, its influence operations. Uh, what kind of influence operations we are talking about? I think the Chinese employ different kind of employment, uh, you know, influence operations uh, when it comes to their diplomacy, financial influence operations, military influence operations, partnership-based influence operations, or alliance-based influence operations. When it comes to alliance-based influence operations, they don't have much more, you know, uh, a, a lot of alliance partner. In fact, uh, so far in the history, they have only one alliance partnership that is with North Korea. Uh, and their partnership with uh, Pakistan is becoming an alliance-oriented partnership. Their partnership with Russia is becoming much more alliance-oriented partnership. But again, those are of different nature. Uh, North Korea is heavily dependent on uh, China, and therefore the Chinese have a kind of legitimacy and influence over North Korea because North Korea needs the Chinese finance. Similarly, when we talk about uh, particularly the case of uh, you know Pakistan, uh, Pakistan need financial help and aid from, from, from China and therefore what we are calling them as uh, an all-weather friends, uh, friendship between Pakistan and China. Like uh, Pakistan needs China support uh, for its anti-India uh, activities uh, and Pakistan needs China 
for its uh, economic development and china on the contrary need pakistan for its uh, anti india posturing and uh, you know create uh, problems for india so it's based on a mutual convenience uh, strategies so in, that's a different kind of influence operations the chinese employ but the real influence operations as far as the chinese are concerned is the financial packages the kind of financial diplomacy they they carry out in fact today if we see their belt and road initiatives which was earlier known as one belt one road initiative the ethailu uh, you know formulations um that is actually a export import uh, um, diplomacy which is actually to enhance the china's investment patterns abroad and trying to encourage the other countries to come to the chinese fold sign the agreements and be with the chinese and uh, help the chinese companies to carry out their businesses in their countries and there the chinese are actually succeeding because they have a serious uh, influence campaigning in these smaller countries and uh, one of the hallmark of the china's influence operations is they do look each and every regions very seriously chinese foreign policy today has become very versatile very dynamic and today if you see they have an effective presence all across the world um beat in asia or in the different parts of other continents in the world geography but when it comes to the asia if we take the example of asia in each and every sub units of asia or sub regions of asia the chinese influence operations is very strong for example as we discussed earlier in south asia china has emerged as a effective influence operator um and they have a you know much more serious cooperation with sri lanka with bangladesh with nepal with bhutan similarly when we speak about southeast asia the chinese are very much uh, you know uh, succeeding in terms of creating a divide and rule strategy there uh, the south china sea claimant countries have been divided further uh, where the chinese are actually investing and pouring money to southeast asian market to uh, make them feel that china is an effective economic power and the southeast asian countries should not compromise in terms of dealing with chinese power uh, so to that effect the chinese employ different strategies similarly if we talk about the central asian regions i think china is a traditional actor in central asian regions and if we go back two and half decades back uh, or three decades back the silk road strategy uh, was actually originally employed by the japanese in the central asian market but today the chinese have successfully you know um, um uh, 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 you know uh, kind of sidelined the japanese uh, diplomacy and emerged as the most effective uh, silk road uh, you know project bearer in the central asian market today and they have the silk road economic belt diplomacy there and they have enormous outreach with all the central asian and eastern european countries today so that actually talks about the china's influence operations they invest there they have connectivity projects they have infrastructure building initiatives there and they are a part of the multilateral nexus there in fact if we talk about the post cold war history uh, china established the uh, you know first effective multilateral organization that is shanghai cooperation organization initially they established at, at uh, established it as a, you know a shanghai five and then they converted it into shanghai cooperation organization uh, you know involving uh, most of the southeast uh, central asian countries today they have actually expanded the prism of the shanghai cooperation organization from central asia to south asia they have invited they have involved india and pakistan into it so it's a kind of narrative that the chinese are building 
and the narrative is to build their strength and uh, try to influence the regions through different operations so the china's uh, operational strategy influence operational strategies has different components financial components partnership components political components and it needs to be effectively understood uh, by the countries in the region i've heard uh, when talking about the belt and road some analysts say that it's dead effectively uh, and and others well china itself you know hyping the belt and road uh, i tend to think it's having more success than not and as well we're hearing now us countermeasures or reactions such as the blue dot network so uh, you know how effective do you think us countermeasures will be in the form of blue dot network or, or otherwise and really how how effective do you see the belt and road i think it is premature to say that belt and road initiatives is dead um uh, what i would say is that uh, let's not try to see the belt and road initiatives in a totally isolated or singular context uh, even the president xi jinping introduced to the world the belt and road package in 2013 but i think a uh, belt and road initiative was very much a part and parcel of the chinese diplomacy chinese foreign policy much before that uh, it was very much visible in hu jintao's period also the previous chinese president so i think we we, we need to be clear about that that belt and road initiative is an ongoing chinese diplomatic practice to put and carry out china's economic and security diplomacy across the region now coming back to the success of the belt and road initiatives what we need to see is that belt and road initiative is not a singular phenomenon which is uh, linked or restricted to a particular region or a, or to a particular set of countries uh, it has a global phenomenon it is attached to the chinese foreign policy so the belt and road initiative will continue to flourish uh, no matter how, in what countries and what region the chinese are really facing uh, uh, you know difficulties or their projects are not really getting successful uh, i think on majority of the projects are getting successful because of their effective diplomacy and operational strategy and that should not be misconstrued or misunderstood but while saying that i think uh, it it also goes uh, saying that uh, uh the belt and road initiatives will continue to face challenges from indo pacific powers particularly from us australia india and japan in fact um, as you mentioned uh among us japan and australia uh, we they actually they formulated the blue dot networks which is about uh, you know talking about quality infrastructure and certifying those quality infrastructure financing uh the china's belt and road initiatives are not really talking about quality infrastructure or quality investment proposals so i think there is a lack of transparency as far as belt and road initiatives are concerned so what us japan and australia are trying to do is to um, build a common platform where some of these countries they can actually trying to convince the smaller and medium ranked countries to actually be with them and trying to believe in a transparent mode of um uh, you know uh, investment oriented uh, process to win packages to uh, aim for uh, you know to aim for uh, aid and donations or financial assistance and i think there the blue dot networks has a point 
and India would be supporting to that Belt and Road Initiatives as an effective Indo-Pacific partner and as a quad partner. Even though formally India has not joined the Blue Dot Network yet, but India is positively considering to be a part of this process and support it because it does challenge to the China's Belt and Road Initiatives. So we can say that next few years or next one decade is going to be very challenging. There will be a contest emerging between China's Belt and Road Initiatives and Blue Dot Network. But again, Blue Dot Network need international financing. It cannot just sustain like a, just as a process of certification. It needs international financing. It needs a collaborative practice. It needs a common agenda in order to you know, carry out its influence and convince the smaller or medium ranked countries in Asia, across Asia, or in the wider Indo-Pacific regions not to go for the China's investment packages, not to go for China's influence operations, not to go for China's financing and believe in a transparent and much more effective qualitative infrastructure program. And that's where you will see the context emerging more prominently between China's Belt and Road Initiative and uh, China's Blue uh, and uh, Indo-Pacific Blue Dot Networks. But while saying that, I would not really say that uh, the Belt and Road Initiative has not yet succeeded completely. In fact, it has succeeded sectorally. It might not be a grand success. It is facing problem definitely, but it has also succeeded in areas like Central Asia. It has succeeded in areas in some countries like in Southeast Asia. Um, it has succeeded to some extent in Southeast Asia. So uh, there are success examples from the Chinese side and we should not be misreading that. I guess my final question would touch on What's what's coming up almost on a weekly basis, you know, this fear um, of a great international military conflict uh, occurring as a result of China's rise. You know, it's often talked about the Thucydides trap and, and, and so on. Do you see the possibility in some future, who knows when, of, uh, you know, perhaps proxy co conflicts um, flaring up or some greater um, conflict between U.S., China and, and their allies? What we will see a new mode of uh, Cold War operations, a Cold War contest. Uh, I think a new mode of Cold War will have a more information-centric, IT-oriented, information technology-oriented, uh, you know, warfare and contest. It might not really be a more physical-oriented military conflict between US and China or China and the rest. Uh, we might see a much more, uh, uh, you know, uh, IT-oriented uh, conflict emerging between China and the US or China versus the rest. And I think there, many countries would be caught in, in between. Uh, but uh, the kind of uh, technological power China is emerging, that is certainly going to be a concern for the region and for the world politics. Unless China becomes transparent, unless the Communist Party in China shows inclinations to observe to the democratic means and bring systematically built democracy in China. I do, we don't expect that China becoming a uh, less assertive or more transparent country. China would continue to become an assertive, aggressive and non-transparent country. It will act more as a hegemonic power in times to come. And that will lead to many conflicts, be it with the US, be it with the rest of the world, including uh, with India or Japan. And I think uh, we will see this power politics come coming again and again and intensifying. But I do not see over the next one decade or so 
any physical conflict or a grand uh, war-like situation emerging between China uh, and the US or China and the rest because the Chinese would not like to engage in such a conflict because they have a long point, a long-term agenda to make and guarantee to the Chinese people that the China's success, China's rise is a continuous process and it is not a short-sighted, um, uh, you know, a temporary phenomenon. And I, to ensure that, they would not like to have a serious conflict which will turn into a war-like situation. Rather, they would like to engage in a contested platform and compete with many countries, including with the US, to enhance China's power posturing in the world politics in times to come. All right. Is there any final thought or comment you uh, wish to leave us with? No, I think it was wonderful talking to you. Uh, and thank you very much for inviting uh, to me. Um, and uh, I'm sure, uh, uh, you know, uh, your platform is well listed and hopefully my views uh, uh, and uh, again, uh, as we discussed earlier, these are my personal views. Uh, my views should be, uh, you know, kind of a seen more from an academic point of view. And um, if anything else, uh, if you are, want to discuss at any point in future, you are most welcome to contact me. And hopefully your readers uh, and viewers will find it uh, useful to have my views and uh, they can contact me if they have any questions or comments. Thank you. Where, where would be the best place uh, for people to find you online? I know you have a Twitter. Yeah, I have a Twitter account. So they can reach me via Twitter or um, uh, my email and my contact details are available in my uh, institute's official website. Um, so they can easily trust me out and they can reach me and write me. Uh, otherwise, I have my own website, which is jpponda.com. Uh, the uh, website is down for uh, temporarily for a week. I'm reworking on the website, but uh, they can also reach me through the website. All right, I'll, I'll include the links in the description. And I don't always stress how, how great my guest's Twitter account is, but you know, Dr. Panda's Twitter feed is really an excellent source. And I think just today I retweeted half a dozen posts uh, from his feed. Uh, and so uh, I'll include the link to your um, from the Institute, your website. And there you publish most of your publications. And I, I'm finding you to be one of my new favorite experts in, in the region. So thank you again for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking to you and uh, have a good day and good week ahead. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.